Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jessica Cortell. It's, uh, we're at Carlisle's Crest Vineyard in Amity. It's August 20th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we'll start your story with uh, why grapes? Uh, why the vineyard? Why grapes? Well, I actually started out working with plants long before I was introduced to grapes. <laughs> I grew up in a family that worked with rhododendrons, so I started out in ornamental horticulture worked with plants literally since I was old enough to walk, <laughs> believe it or not, and then I didn't get introduced to grapes until I was at Oregon State University working on my undergraduate degree in horticulture. I took a class on fruit production and they had one week on grapes and that made me fascinated. I was really fascinated about the grapes because it wasn't just about how much crop or yield you could produce, but it was really about the chemistry in the fruit and how that could have an impact on the wine. So I was fascinated by a crop that was more than just growing as much as you could. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, how do you actually grow high quality grapes? <laughs> um, so then in 1990, I worked with Die Crisp at Croft Vineyard and did pretty much everything in the vineyard. So that was my first real experience working, Ali, sit down. <laughs> working with, the, with vineyards specifically. And that was back in, I wanna say like 1990, 91, so pretty early on. And I did tractor work. At one point, they only had guys pruning. At one point I was just like, let me prune or I'm gonna quit. <laughs> so I love pruning to this day because I ended up pruning that winter and just two of us pruned an entire 20 acre vineyard or more, just the two of us every day out there pruning. So I really enjoyed that. And ever since I still love pruning grapevines. <laughs> and then, but it was interesting at the time, there was so much sulfur sprayed in the vineyards that it wasn't really pleasant to go home smelling like sulfur, believe it or not. <laughs> I would go running and be sweating out sulfur. So, you know, that was, Dye was trying to do organic production. Well, he still does, but so there was a lot of sulfur. So I ended up getting interested in medicinal herbal supplements because they're also plants that are very specific in terms of how you grow them, each crop needs to be harvested at a specific time. Some you'll harvest in the buds, some in the flowers, some the roots, some the leaves. Mm -hmm. So we grew about 200 different plants. And that was fascinating. With the grapevines at the time, I was like, hmm, five different clones of Pinot Noir, hmm, versus 200 different herbal plants, everything from corn for corn silk, raspberry for raspberry leaves. And, and I actually had, probably the biggest plantation of dandelions ever. We actually <laughs> planted, I know, we had five acres of dandelion for dandelion root. Dandelion has a lot of iron and a lot of health benefits. So that was really fascinating. And I'd still love to figure out how to incorporate a lot of those 
uh, herbal crops into vineyards interplanted because that could be a really interesting. So I did managed organic certified herbal supplement farms for several years that were vertically integrated where we dried, milled, processed, you know, the complete line. So if you go, Fred Myers has the Oregon's Wild Harvest, but we, we were working with that label all the way from growing it to processing the final products. Mm -hmm. But then in 1999, I believe it was, I moved back to Corvallis and took the viticulture research assistant position. So I got back into grapes at that point. So in 2000, 2001, I helped assist with all the graduate student research programs at Oregon State University. So there are about five or six different grad students and multiple different research projects. Mm -hmm. So I helped collect the data, helped the students analyze their data. So that was fun working with the students and with the research projects. Um, but at that point I had been interested in the health benefits of plants and also the health benefits of wine and wine and phenolic compounds and how they are not only important in mouthfeel and tannin structure in the wine but also the health benefits. So at that point I talked to Jim Kennedy over in the food science department and decided to do my PhD with him in food science and technology looking at fruit and wine chemistry. I think I didn't mention that I actually did a master's degree <laughs> in horticulture at Oregon State too on whole plant physiology of marrying blackberries. I wanted to work with grapes but it was on blackberries but it was it was whole plant physiology. <laughs> so, so I came back decided to do my PhD and luckily by then I was a little bit older student so I was able to actually write the grant with Jim Kennedy and get it funded by, oh, what is that? The Washington, Oregon Research, what is that group? Sorry. I'm oh, just, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, <laughs> not thinking of it right now. <laughs> anyway, I, we were able to get the project funded, but it was really a different design. Typically a PhD project, you're looking at a very narrow, focused topic. And I really wanted to look at a systems approach. I had studied agroecology, I had studied organic farming. I really wanted to look at an integrated system, not, not just one small piece of the puzzle, which there is, that type of research is important in terms of doing a very linear design of ex excluding all the other variables and just looking at one variable. But I think when it comes to wine and vineyards, sometimes trying to look at an integrated system is useful because there are so many things going on it's so many relationships in in the vineyard between the soil the microbes the vines etc so my research was actually looking at spatial variability in the vineyard in the soils soil depth water holding soil type and really looking at all the way from the soil to the fruit and wine chemistry, looking at how the differences in soil, in terms of particularly depth and water holding, impacted vine vigor, which is basically how much the vine is growing or how fast it's growing, how large, <laughs> and looking at that and then taking it all the way to looking at fruit phenolics and wine phenolics. 
So that was with Jim Kennedy at Oregon State University. And his specialty was tannins. So, so you could say I was, became a chemist. <laughs> I have to say after many, many late night hours in the chemistry lab analyzing samples, I realized that I'm an outside person and I'm very much a plant person. I love the chemistry, but that's kind of how I got back on into the more of the vineyard side because I really just like being outdoors with the vines. But, but we found some really interesting results too with the research. Uh, it, it, my research probably is more recognized in Europe than here. Like I went to the International Terroir mm -hmm. Conference at Linfield and that was really fun, but I just went there like, oh yeah, I think I'll go there. But it was amazing. There were people from Europe, they were like, oh my gosh, you're Jessica Cortell? That's the best research that's been done in 10 years. Can we have you get a picture with you? You know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, you know. So, so it's nice that there is some international recognition of the research and it was really interesting because I really did a systems approach to research and since I did that project there's another number of scientists around the world that have kind of used that same approach of looking at kind of a whole system but looking at spatial variability but looking at different factors like I was looking at tannins but there's another scientists that looked at Riesling aroma and flavors. So there have been other studies that have kind of used the same model. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really interesting. There were some people that said, no, you can't do a PhD like that. That's, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's you know, not possible. But, but it was really interesting. And what we came up with was really seeing huge differences in the wine phenolics in both the fruit and in the wine, just based on differences in vine vigor, even in a small area. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with soil depth and water holding. But we had like huge differences in color, huge differences in pigmented polymers. And when you ex expose the grapes to more sun, they'll develop a lot more skin tannin. So we saw a big shift with medium or lower vigor vines where they'd have like 75% skin tannin in the wine and 25% seed tannin and where you might have high vigor vines with 50% seed tannin and 50% skin tannin. So some really interesting results. I thought I was going to look more at seed tannins, but it's actually skin tannin that's the driver that, that's really responsive to sunlight, mm -hmm. as well as UV, um, flavanols are also very UV responsive. And both of those can play an important role in mouthfeel and structure in the wine. Seed tannins tend to be more bitter and unpleasant. Skin tannins a little bit more round and pleasant. Skin tannin is a long molecule. It's like 27 to 42 subunits all polymerized together. Seed tannin is seven to nine. So the smaller ones, particularly the monomers, which are like one subunit, have a lot more bitterness. So, so it'd be fun to actually use some of that research in some of what I'm doing today in the vineyards. You know, I'd start working with wineries a little more on, let's find the best part of your vineyard, for example. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. So tell me about uh, the next step and how, how, how it gets to you being a vineyard manager. <laughs> so <clears throat> when I finished my PhD, I was really torn between research and industry. Mm -hmm. Research is fascinating because you're studying new topics, but in the university system there's a lot of comp 
a lot of competition for grants, a lot of, you know, hurry up and publish. And I also see that a lot of times in industry, people are able to just, they have a new idea and they just run with it. You know, like it's a little easier to just do whatever you want and try what you want and not feel like you have to do four years of research on a one topic. Mm -hmm. So so I was a little torn, like it would be fun to do research, but I decided to go into the industry and, and took a job with Premier Pacific Vineyards based out of Amity. At the time, they were managing all the CalPERS vineyards, so it was about 500 acres in Oregon. So I was the viticulturist for Oregon and Washington. They were doing some developments in Washington also. <clears throat> so my job though was to make recommendations on everything from pruning to irrigation, nutrition programs, weed management, cover crops. So I wasn't managing labor crews at the time, but everything else in terms of irrigation scheduling, yield estimates, so collecting data and then making recommendations on all the different practices. And so I worked there until 2008, I believe. When the recession hit, I ended up being the one that was let go. So what do you do when you have a PhD and it's a recession? Start your own company, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're like, it's like, okay, who's gonna hire somebody with a PhD during a recession? And this place here, Carlisle's Crest, I just bought it. And so I couldn't really sell it very easily. So I was like, okay, I'm here, what am I gonna do? So, so that's how I ended up starting Vitus Terra Vineyard Services. I started out consulting and then in May of 2010, I started the management company Vitus Terra Vineyard Services. So what's the process you go through as a, as a vineyard manager slash consultant? What is it? When someone comes to you, what is it you offer and what is it you're looking for in a client? So as far as what we offer, we offer now pretty much all services from developing a new vineyard to managing existing vineyards, consulting, uh, we even started building a few fences. <laughs> so I mean we do pretty much everything, so it really depends on what the client's looking for. Uh, in terms of management, you know, like if they want just help with some things versus other vineyards, we man we do everything from tractor driving, spraying, uh, you know, general cleanup. Well, okay, this morning we're chopping gophers here, <laughs> so so you name it, <laughs> we do pretty much everything. But we also really work with developing spray programs, nutrition programs. I think that's one of our strengths is, you know, really having solid spray programs. And we do mostly organic now. So as far as what clients probably fit what we're doing best, we're really moving toward focusing on organic, not necessarily certified, but organic production methods. Mm -hmm. So I wanna say now we are 100% Roundup or glyphosate free this year. We just decided we're going to make a stance on it and not spray it because it's potentially hazardous for people spraying it. So I like to think about my workers in terms of what they're spraying and, and not use products if I think there's a high risk, but also just there's a lot of concern about glyphosate yeah. on soil and mm -hmm. soil microbes. So 
the company's 100% glyphosate free, we've encouraged our growers to try other different methods, so we've moved away from that. But then we do about 85, 90, probably 90% organic spray programs, so mostly organic now. So as far as clients that would be the best fit, generally it's going to be the ones that estate vineyards or wineries or ones that really want a high level of attention to detail, organic methods, mm -hmm. nutrition programs, you know, really trying to take care of the vineyard in the way that it produces the best fruit possible. That's our goal. You know, our goal is always to have the best fruit show up at the winery and to have it looking really good, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would you say your, your sort of vineyard philosophy is, your grape growing philosophy, and maybe how that's developed over the years? Well, I had worked with organic production quite, you know, I got interested in that years ago, back when it wasn't very popular, I, in my mid-twenties maybe, back when the O word wasn't something you said at OSU or a few other places. <laughs> I actually went to school in New Zealand for a year. And you didn't want to say the old word there either. The one professor that was interested in it was sort of ostracized back then. And it's interesting because that same school in New Zealand now and, and at OSU now, they offer a lot of organic classes and the one in New Zealand is specializes in organic production systems. So it's changed quite a bit in terms of, of that. But I had an interest in it early on. I actually worked part-time as an organic farm inspector for Tilth for about 10 years from 1990 to 2000. So I did organic farm inspections in Oregon, Washington. I actually did some out in Wisconsin as well. So for a long time I've been, you know, I've been supportive of organic production, but when I got into vineyard management, it seemed like there was not as much interest in that. <laughs> so we, so at first I wasn't really pushing in that direction that much because it didn't seem like a lot of the wineries felt like there was strong marketability for organic wines in particular. But they do, but a lot of growers like the grapes grown organically even if the wines are not made organically. So. But as far as my philosophy, I am very much of really always wanting to learn new things and be open-minded to different ideas. So I, I have a hard time jumping into any one type of practices. Mm -hmm. you know, like I'll take some ideas from permaculture, some from biodynamics, some from organics, and really like to look at integrating those into what I think fits best for the particular vineyard or the site. I feel like I, there's, I always have more to learn and new types of approaches to integrate. I think there's a lot of movement toward moving away from Roundup, but also moving away from cultivation and looking at how that protects the soil. and then, Ultimately, what would be really fun is to get to where your vineyard could be growing some of those other herbal crops that might be harvestable or having some of those growing under the vines where mm -hmm. you're not needing to cultivate. Mostly, I don't have time. I, I'm like, I need more time just to set up some trials and see what works best. Mm -hmm.
but I like to keep an open mind and to me what I love about wine is there's always more to learn that's kind of my motto there's always more to learn like I don't ever think I know everything so I'm always looking into new ideas and trying new things mm -hmm. if and the only reason I don't do more of that is just a needing more t I just need more time that's all <laughs> but I think the whole industry is moving that direction in terms of you know a higher level of sustainability years ago we talked about sustainability but I think now the whole climate change issues is changing maybe how we define sustainability and you know taking a, a bigger look at carbon cycling and carbon emissions and what happens when you cultivate in terms of releasing carbon into the atmosphere so really like taking some of the things we s studied or thought about years ago but applying new concepts to it mm -hmm. and taking that to another level of saying okay how do we farm in a way that is as compatible as possible. Mm -hmm. I, I also have to say, farming is a disruptive practice. You know, like, we were hunters and gatherers, now we farm, and it is disruptive. So I think we, sometimes, we have to be careful of, sometimes people want to say, oh, well, we shouldn't do this and this and that. Well, okay, there has to be some balance of what is your goal. Like, if my goal is to produce the best fruit possible to make wine, I have to figure out how do I do that with principles that are as close to ecology or as, as close to nature as possible, as ecology-based as possible, but I'm still knowing that my goal is that we actually want to grow grapes and have good wine. Mm -hmm. So it's like trying to find that balance mm -hmm. in terms of sustainability. Because, I mean, you could be totally sustainable, but, I mean, I have a client like that. We. We still don't have a crop after about five years just because it's like, well, no, we don't want to cultivate. No, we don't, you know, and so ultimately, you know, <laughs> we want to produce grapes and we want to have really good quality, but it, um, my approach is just really looking at how to be as ecology-based as possible, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as close to nature as possible. And certainly we have room for improvement in terms of adding more biodiversity into the vineyard systems, mm -hmm. minimizing cultivation, looking at new techniques. So, yeah. so you mentioned clients with different expectations. Tell me about sort of building the relationships with your clients and, and how you find the balance between what, what you want, what they want, what's reasonable, you know, what's, what, what makes the most sense and how you sort of figure that out over the years. So as far as clients go, yeah, it's interesting because ultimately we want to work with the clients and achieve what their goals or dreams are. But I think it's, this is probably one of the few industries where people buy land and plant grapes that may have no plant or agricultural background. So I think sometimes it's a little challenging in that way and just in terms of steering steering them and trying to help guide them in the right direction when they might have ideas based on things they heard but they really don't have the agricultural experience. Like if you took a berry grower and they decided to grow grapes, it would be a different learning curve because they'd already know what, why you would lime the soil for example or why you might do you know, whatever number of practices. But a lot of times people planting vineyards might not have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I actually 
taught at Chemakada for what, seven, nine years, something like that. So I actually like sharing my knowledge and teaching people. So, so I feel like my strength sometimes is helping, knowing when to help share knowledge and help bring people up to speed on, oh, well, we lime the soil so we can raise the soil pH so that the vines can grow better, the nutrients are available, the bacteria that fix nitrogen in the legumes can actually fix nitrogen. If the pH is too low, they can't even fix nitrogen. So if you're trying to do use your cover crops to add nitrogen to the soil, if the pH is too low, you're going to be challenged. So, you know, just really trying to understand that person's background and help help share knowledge with them so they have a better understanding of why we're doing what we're doing mm -hmm. and developing that relationship in that way of sharing knowledge and having it based on trust so mm -hmm. so they know why we're doing different things. Okay. So you mentioned you work at, you're at Oregon State and, and teaching at Chemeketa. So tell me about working with kind of wine students, vineyard students, uh, what they're looking for and what, and what you're kind of trying to impart to them as the, as the sort of next generation of grape grower. Yeah. Well, I think that's the part that I really love. When I was teaching, it was really the students. I love the students. I love the relationships I had with them and still have, you know, because I think I t started teaching part-time in 2009 and then full-time in 2011 at Shemakada and taught pretty much all the vineyard classes. So I want to say I probably had a good 500 students or more. <laughs> and so to me, I feel like that's something I was able to contribute to the industry in terms of really helping a lot of those students find their own passion and follow their own path in the industry. So it's fun to see so many of them with wine labels or vineyards or working at different wineries working in tasting rooms, doing some amazing stuff out there. So it's really fun just to see what the students are doing out there and, and to be able to, I'm not the type of teacher that I just want to spoon feed people or give people a recipe. I really want to teach them how to think in a logical way and how to make decisions and how to analyze information. and. To see them out in the industry doing really well is great, you know, to see that they are able to take that base knowledge but apply making decisions and, and really continuing to learn and grow. Like even with my students, I'd always be like, okay, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's always so much more to learn, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> Sweet, yes. <laughs> Allie. Let's, 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 take, let's take the paw down. There we go. Okay. Um, so I'm curious, uh, one of the things we hear a lot from people who are, who are growing grapes around here is, is about the variety, you know, variety of soil, variety of things you can do with the soil, with the microclimates. Tell me what you've kind of learned about the various microclimates and climates you've worked with in the Willamette Valley and, and sort of what the differences are in, in, the, in the end grape and end wine. So as far as soil goes, I love working with soils and anytime I have a chance to have a soil scientist or geologist come out here, that's great. We just did a couple soil pits out here and it was fascinating looking at the soil pits and the different soil profiles. I would say the main two types of soil that are important in the Willamette Valley is sedimentary and volcanic. But then within both of those, you can break it down a whole bunch into different soil depths, water holding, 
texture, color, um, and then the, the company I had out here from Rosero, they're really fascinated by the little air pockets, the little air bubbles in the volcanic soil and how that impacts uh, root growth and microbes living inside those little pores in the soil or the little air bubbles in the rocks. So here we have a bunch of really eroded rock and you can really see that where the roots are able to just get down through that crumbled volcanic rock really easily. And so it's really interesting because with the volcanic soils, even if they're reasonably shallow and don't hold that much water, the vines can still perform quite well because they're able to work their roots down this kind of column-like crumbled basalt rock. So even in the soil pit we did right over here, these vines are five years old and the roots were already like six feet down. So the roots are really able to find their way through there. And so on the other hand, if we look at the sedimentary soil, which this property actually goes from volcanic and transitions into sedimentary soil on the western side. And if you go to the sedimentary soil, like here, it's this much topsoil and then it's sand and siltstone and the sedimentary soils are like a plates. So if you can imagine a plate, the roots and the water can't really get through that. You can try to break it up with ripping but the roots are gonna have a much harder time because it's not crumbled like the basalt. So sometimes they're gonna hit those roots and go lateral and you're going to more likely need irrigation. Probably the difference here is like the volcanic half probably holds six to 10 inches of water in the soil profile. Whereas over there, it's like maybe three inches of water holding. So I think, I always tell people, if you wanna do the dry farming, and be part of the Dry Roots Coalition. Find a deeper volcanic soil and you'll be able to do it because there is enough water held in those deeper soils to do that. If you're on a shallow sedimentary soil, if you want to have healthy grapevines and produce good wine, you're actually going to need irrigation. Like I don't have irrigation in over here right now, but I don't think the vines are going to get up to producing unless I put in irrigation. It's, it's that shallow, like it's that much topsoil and then it's silt and sand. So I think those two soil types can behave quite a bit different um, in terms of how the grapes grow and whether you need irrigation or not. And also in terms of some of the nutrition, the sedimentary soils tend to be lower in organic matter. Mm -hmm. So sedimentary soil might have like 3% organic matter. And then some of the volcanic soils have up to 10% organic matter. So if you have 10% organic matter, the microbes are gonna mineralize about 200 pounds of nitrogen per year in the soil profile. With a sedimentary soil, if you only have 3%, you're gonna have a lot less nitrogen naturally being mineralized by microbes. It might be like a 90 to 100. Mm -hmm. So a so big difference there. So do you have a do you have a favorite time of the year to be, to be in the vineyard? Is there a favorite part of the season that, that really appeals to you? Hmm. <laughs> I love the spring when everything starts growing and everything's really green. But harvest is fun, but it's also kind of stressful. <laughs> we pick both day and night, so uh, it's a little little crazy. So, you know, so harvest, I mean, 
we're just kind of on an adrenaline rush during harvest and you actually kind of kind of hit the wall afterwards because <laughs> we're just going kind of non-stop for three weeks mm -hmm. we pick quite a few vineyards at night so sometimes we'll be starting at anywhere from midnight to 2 a.m and then usually we'll have a day pick also so we're literally picking 24 7 <laughs> for about three weeks non-stop and then a couple weeks leading up and finishing sure so but I like all the times of the year, but the spring's really pretty when the vines start growing and everything's green and flowers are out and yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned your, your personal vineyard here. So what are you doing with the grapes here? Tell us, tell us about what you've kind of growing and, and, and turning these into. <laughs> so here we're, we're growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And right now, most of it's going to Antica Terra Winery. So right now, I'm not making any of my own wine, unless it's fun home winemaker projects. Well, I still need to decide if I'm going to do a commercial label at some point. But right now, I occasionally make wine for fun if I have time. But harvest is so crazy, sometimes it's just hard to even find time. <laughs> so, yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> what do you find to be the biggest challenges in, in vineyard work? Probably the biggest challenges are just having certain times of year where we're extremely busy and just trying to stay on top of everything and keep everybody happy because it seems like every year the season is getting more compressed mm -hmm. where once the vines start growing they just grow really fast so we're doing all the canopy management in about a month to a month and a half where I used to think it was more like two months so it seems like everything's getting really compressed so you need a lot of workers in a short period of time our goal is always to stay on top of vineyard management because if you get behind there's a lot of potential risk for disease it ends up taking longer you break more shoots so we really try to stay, do things on time but that means having a lot of people for a short period of time and what stresses me out the most is when every two weeks you have a huge payroll and you're having to try to get everybody to pay you and get everybody paid and so it's challenging because we don't have a big markup in this industry compared to other industries where they would mark up their labor maybe 45 percent we have a very small markup so and we also in agriculture a lot of the workers want to be paid every week so it becomes very challenging just trying to keep all that cash moving in and moving out yes it moves in and out really fast <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to know do, do we you know so that's probably the biggest challenge that's not vineyard related it's just managing the whole labor side of it so sometimes that's like oh i'd be nice if i could just spend more time with the vines and not be worrying about all the other parts of running a business mm -hmm. but but i do like the idea of employing we have 45 people on our payroll now and then we had another 30 or 40 subcontractors we're just starting to slow down a little bit before harvest so now we're just back to my main crew but but I really try to have a good work environment. Most of the people that work with us stay for quite a while and you know, they have fun, they enjoy their work, you know, and they're passionate about what they're doing. So we really try to create a good work environment and generally try to pay as well as we can within the constraints of the industry. Mm -hmm. 
and we do offer health insurance and 401k and try to have we always have a huge barbecue here with pinatas so we try to have some fun and you know and try to do some stuff to make it a good place for people to work mm -hmm. um what, what was the rest of the question other challenges um that's probably the big one is just in the future i think it's inevitable that we're going to have to look at more mechanization. Like right now, in a typical vineyard, we do 200 to 300 hours of hand labor. If you think about that, is there any other crop in the valley where we do that much hand labor? No. Hazelnuts, the only time I see them out there is when they prune. Blueberries, they prune and then they hand pick some and they machine pick some. So if you look at grapes, very very labor intensive so so we need to look at how do we reduce the number of of hours of hand labor and and which jobs can we mechanize and still produce high quality grapes and wine mm -hmm. so i think that's going to be the key over the next couple of years is looking at different pieces of equipment trying to figure out how do we still have that high level of quality but figure out how to reduce some of the hand, hand labor. Mm -hmm. What else do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine or, or Oregon viticulture specifically? Are there other challenges on the horizon? As far as other challenges, there's definitely a lot of headlines in the news about not using glyphosate. So I, I, I already see a lot of people in this industry moving away from using Roundup or using herbicides. So I think that'll continue to happen. Oregon's going to want to protect its green, sustainable reputation and really move toward really looking at those practices. And so I think we'll see more of that. There's also a huge interest in just right now in other varietals besides Pinot Noir and, and even Chardonnay. It's amazing the number of people right now that like I want to buy anything but Pinot <laughs> so I think right now it's a little hard to sell some of the Pinot on the market just because there's a lot of Pinot Noir available so I think we're going to see a greater diversity of varieties and wine styles mm -hmm. so like we have one vineyard that we literally top grafted 10 acres of Pinot Noir to Gamay Noir and, and we could sell it five times over right now mm -hmm. so so I think there's going to be a lot more interest in trying out new different varieties, everything from Chenin Blanc to some of the Austrian varieties to Riesling to more different Chardonnay clones, Gamay Noir, Trousseau, you name it, a bunch of different ones. <laughs> so that's really interesting because remember back when I was like, I don't know if I want to work with viticulture, it's only five clones of Pinot. <laughs> so I'm kind of excited when it's like, oh, we could work with more different plant different types of varietals and different clones. <laughs> what does it mean for your business and your work? Is that is it extra work to have to figure out the new grapes or is it kind of, does it not change much at all? Well, I think it's extra work as far as just trying to find out what grows well, mm -hmm. you know, and, try, and trying to help people source those vines. So I actually did a purchase option on another vineyard and I might actually plant a little varietal trial over there just so we can look at some different plant materials and different clones. Like I would love to get like a collection of Gamay clones planted and um, 
some different varieties, like plant some Pinot Meunier or some Aligote or, you know, try planting some different things and maybe just plant a little bit there to see how they do. Because sometimes it is hard to try to tell new people, oh yeah, try this when if I haven't grown it, how do I know it's going to be successful? <laughs> so, it, you know, I think there'll be a learning curve there figuring out what are some of the other varietals that do well. Mm -hmm but I don't know if we have all that information right now for the Valley. So. so what's in the future for you and for your business? What do you see as you look ahead five, 10 years down the road? <laughs> five, 10 years down the road? Well, <laughs> I mean, I hopefully eventually could at least back off a little bit so that I'm not the one worrying about the payroll every you know, <laughs> week or every other week. It'd be new. Hopefully I could have somebody else take care of that. So I don't know, you know, if I, in the future, I want to really focus on vineyard development with really integrating, not using herbicide. Like all our current developments, we don't, we're not using any herbicide for development from day one. So those sites can be really clean and free of pesticide residues, but also wanting to do some developments where we incorporate really thoughtful design in terms of preserving oak savanna and in terms of maybe integrating permaculture principles in terms of water management and native plants and biodiversity really looking at that type of thing that would be my dream to be able to develop do some larger developments where we really are able to integrate all those concepts in new vineyards and otherwise I guess I still on the fence about whether I start a wine label at some point or not. And ideally I'd just like to be more working closely with the vines and maybe have a little bit less of the day-to-day -day management <laughs> to worry about, but that'll come at some point. Sure. So, <laughs> so what, uh, what words of wisdom would you have for someone who's interested in entering the Oregon wine industry? Words of wisdom. I mean, I just, I just always am like, well, there's always more to learn, you know, like, I think sometimes it is challenging for people coming in because they hear so many different things and then they're not sure how to juggle those or decide what the best approach is. Um, I guess I would say enter it cautiously too, because I mean, it's obviously very expensive to plant a vineyard and expensive to start a wine label. So I think sometimes people jump into it and then they don't really realize what they're getting into until they're already kind of into it. So probably, <laughs> you know, not being in a rush. I see people buy land and want to plant vineyards and they're like, oh, let's plant this fall or next spring. And like, you know what, if it's a vineyard that you want to have in the ground for 30 years, is it not maybe a good, wise idea to take a year or maybe even two years to really prepare the soil correctly or carefully and really take time to find the plant material that you want. You know, so maybe I guess, yeah, take the, take the time to really learn, learn and not be in a rush. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, there are things you can change. You can top graph vines to different varietals, but I think sometimes people just want to jump in and just go a little too fast instead of maybe a little more research, a little bit slower steps. Sure. Sure. <laughs> cool. 
So that's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have? Not that I can think of. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and the hospitality out here and all your answers. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.